Well, as we join together with our friends worshiping in the Community Life Center this morning, let me invite everybody to once again take your Bibles and turn in the Gospel of Luke, this time to the 15th chapter. We're continuing our journey through Luke's telling of the story of Jesus. We are approaching the climax as he will soon be making his way to Jerusalem for those tumultuous events that will lead to his crucifixion and resurrection. Today in Luke 15 he is still en route to Jerusalem. We'll make mention of that in a moment but he's drawing close. But here's what Luke records for us in the 15th chapter. We'll begin in verses 1 through 3 and then jump over to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now come with me to verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, 
who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. <clears throat> well, everybody loves a good comeback story. Here's a disgraced politician who overcomes a personal scandal to win re-election. Here is a Hollywood celebrity who has multiple trips through rehab only to come back and win an Oscar. Here's a star athlete who battles through a personal crisis and comes back the next season to win the championship. We love these kinds of stories because they speak to us about determination and grit. They feed this narrative by which we tell ourselves that we can overcome anything if we just put our minds to it and work hard enough. I don't know, but I think that may have something to do with why the story we just read out of Luke chapter 15 continually ranks as one of the most beloved stories in all of Scripture. Because here's a story about a kid who sinks to the bottom, who makes a mess out of his life, and yet who by the end of the story has managed to crawl his way back to the top. It looks like we've got a comeback story for the ages here. But if we read the story that way, then it probably says more about us than it does about the story itself. Just consider the title that we have attached to this story. We have traditionally called this the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal being an English word that means reckless or wasteful, obviously describing the actions of the younger brother. But understand this, neither Jesus who told this story nor Luke who wrote this story down gave it that title. We gave that title to the story. Because somewhere along the way, we decided that the youngest son is the most interesting character in the story. He's the one who tends to captivate our imaginations. What if I told you that the younger brother is really not the one who makes this a story worth remembering? Because there's really nothing unique or special about what this young kid did. A young man who rebels against his father, who throws away his inheritance, who defies his heritage, and then makes a series of reckless and destructive choices until he winds up broke and destitute. There's really nothing unique about that. My guess is that a lot of you here today could get up and tell your own version of that story. Either you or someone you love has done some version of what this kid did no, he's not the reason this is a story worth remembering. We don't continue 2,000 years later to come down to the church and tell this story to one another because of the younger son. It's the father who makes this a story for the ages. Because this father does what no reasonable father would do. 
You see, in Jesus' day, society, especially male society, was defined by a strong honor culture. In those days, not too different from ours, all a man really had at the end of the day was his personal honor, his dignity, which is just a glorified way of saying his pride. And no good, upstanding male member of society would tolerate having his honor challenged, especially not by some bratty, good-for-nothing kid. And yet, that's exactly what happens here. For starters, the kid walks in one day and says essentially, Dad, drop dead. That's the effect of his words. By asking for his inheritance now, he was basically telling the father that the father was worth more to him dead than alive. And the amazing thing is that the father, in violation of everything that would seem honorable, gave this son what he wanted. This father would rather allow his son to disgrace him than to hold him there against his will. What kind of father does that? That's just the beginning of the disgrace. Jumping ahead in the story, when the son finally comes crawling back home, we read that when the father sees him coming over the horizon, he does the unthinkable. He hikes up his tunic, the outer garment that a man would have worn in that day, and he leaps off the porch, and the scriptures say he runs towards the son with his arms open wide for embrace. In that day and time, no good, upstanding, honorable man would ever run in public. It was considered undignified beneath your stature, especially if it involved running towards a kid who has disgraced you and brought dishonor to your name. And yet that's exactly what this father does. What kind of father does that? And then as if all of that wasn't shameful enough the father goes and throws a party to honor this wayward kid who has come home after all the damage and destruction that he has done now according to the customs of the day there was actually a prescribed ritual that the father should have performed when the son came home Jewish oral tradition laid it out. It was called a geshasa, and it involved taking a glass or clay jar filled with burned corn and nuts and smashing it on the ground in front of the feet of the offending party as a way of demonstrating publicly that you were now cutting him off, that you were to no longer have anything to do with him. But that's not what the father does. Instead, he brings out a robe, hires a band, butchers a cow, invites the neighbors, and puts on the biggest party the village has seen in decades. You see the point? It's the father's actions that make this story worth telling. The younger son is only doing what young sons have done for thousands upon thousands of years. But the father's behavior is so beyond expectation and explanation that, that two millennium later we still scratch our heads trying to make sense of it. That is because God's response to us still makes no sense. Go back and look at the circumstances which prompted Jesus to tell this story in the first place. 
the opening lines of Luke 15 tells us that Jesus found himself gathered around one day with some tax collectors and other so-called sinners. Now, it doesn't spell out for us who those sinners were, but based on other stories that we've read, we can kind of fill in the details with our imaginations. Suffice it to say, these were people who were not in good moral standing with society. People that the good religious folk of the day would have shunned entirely. Yet there Jesus was, hanging out with them, talking to them, even daring to eat with them in some cases. That prompted the Pharisees, a group of religious leaders of the day, to say something about Jesus. They said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But understand, they did not mean that as a compliment. It uh, It was a statement of derision and scorn, criticism and accusation. You see, in their way of thinking, if if Jesus truly was a holy man, then he would know the kinds of people that were around him, and he would know that he should keep a distance from them. But in response to that criticism, Jesus tells a series of three stories, or parables as we call them. Each of the stories involves the case of something that goes missing And someone who goes to amazing lengths to find that something which was missing. In the first story we read about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and manages to lose only one of them. Now I've never been a shepherd but I would personally consider a 99% success rate to be pretty good. If that were me I'd just write it off on my taxes and move on with my day. But not this shepherd. The shepherd is not willing that even one sheep should be lost. So this shepherd leaves the 99 good sheep, the ones who were smart enough not to get themselves lost. He goes off and leaves them so he can search out the one knucklehead who did. What kind of a shepherd does that? In the next story, we read about a woman who has 10 silver coins and manages to lose one of them. Now, we don't know the value of these coins, it's not stated, but we can probably imagine we're not talking about a life savings here. It's probably not the difference between survival and prosperity. And yet, this woman is not willing that even one of those coins should be lost, so she drags all the furniture out in the yard, rips up all the carpet, and sweeps the place bare until she finds that one missing coin. What kind of a homeowner does that? By now the pattern should begin to be obvious. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners because God will go to any length to find what is missing. Just in case we don't get that point, Jesus goes on to tell this story, the most well-known of the three. This story of a wayward, good-for-nothing, reckless son who wastes his father's inheritance and the story of a father who, in defiance of all logical explanation, welcomes this kid home with a hug and a party. What kind of a father does this? More importantly, what kind of a God tells this kind of a story? In short, the answer is he is a God who will stop at nothing to find what is lost, even if it will cost him the life of his own son. 
We've already mentioned this, but it shouldn't pass our notice that Jesus tells this story as he is approaching Jerusalem. A few chapters later, we will read about him entering the city, and then you know what happens. And so does he. He fully anticipates what is coming. He knows that once he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed and arrested and abandoned and mocked and then ultimately crucified. That's what's waiting him. And yet he goes there anyway, willingly facing that kind of scorn and shame because that's how deeply and desperately he wants to draw us back into the Father's love. I think it's dishonorable for a father to hike up his tunic and run in public. It pales in comparison to the dishonor of a God who will allow himself to hang on a cross and be publicly humiliated in front of the world. All for the sake of being reconciled to his wayward children. He called in the middle of the night to tell us the news his son was coming home for a while he'd been concerned about the son he'd shared those concerns with us in the past was afraid that the son was getting mixed up in drugs and yet nothing he did seemed to be getting the son's attention and then one day out of the blue the son called to admit he was in fact struggling with addiction and that he was coming home to get help And our friend simply couldn't wait until the sun came up to tell us the news. So we were awakened in the middle of the night to the sound of the phone ringing. The next day, our friend went and cashed in some of his savings to get the sun into rehab. Now, I don't know what bothered me the most, the fact that he had to wake me up in the middle of the night to tell me that. Or the fact that he'd be willing to surrender part of his own retirement to get the kids some help. Such is the unreasonable nature of a father's love. That's the kind of father we read about. More importantly, that's the kind of God we read about. A God who will stop at nothing, who will hold nothing back. For the sake of welcoming us home. I don't know who you identify with most in this story. Like I said before, it's the younger son who tends to captivate our imagination. So maybe you see something of yourself in him. Maybe you too have made a series of reckless choices. Maybe you've blown through money or opportunity or relationships. And you've got nothing but the wreckage around you to show for it. If that's the case, then maybe this story can at least offer you a little encouragement that you're not alone. You are certainly not the first one in history to do such things. Or maybe, maybe you identify more with the older son in this story. Maybe you're the firstborn type. The hardworking, responsible one who plays by the rules and keeps your nose clean, you volunteer at the school, you serve on committees, you put money in the offering plate, you pay your taxes early. 
If that's you, then maybe you can understand the jealousy and the frustration of the older brother when he hears the music pouring out of the farmhouse, wondering why in the world this younger brother of his is entitled to such treatment. But the real character who ought to captivate our imaginations in this story is neither the younger nor the older brother. It's the father. The Father is there to remind us that it doesn't matter how bad we've been. And as strange as it may seem, it doesn't even matter how good we've been. Because neither goodness nor badness matters in the kingdom of God. All that matters is grace. All that matters is that the Father is there to welcome us back into the family. Beyond anything that is logical, beyond anything that is reasonable. The Father loves us. And He stands ready to embrace us. The only question is whether or not we will let Him. You will note that by the time we get to the end of this passage, we don't really know how the story ends. The band is warming up, and the grill is smoking, but as the curtain falls on this drama, the father is out in the field begging the older son to come in and join the party. The question looming over this text is, will the older brother come in or will he stay out in the cold? And while we're at it, what about the younger brother? Will he live fully into his new found identity as the father's restored son? Or will he skip town again at first light? We don't know the answers to those questions. And I can't help but think that's not an accident. Master storyteller that he was, I think Jesus ended the story the way he did for a reason. The reason is this, he's waiting to see how that story plays out in our lives. We can receive the Father's welcome, or we can stay out in the cold. The choice is ours. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that it still defies our ability to understand why you would willingly love people such as us. We confess before you our unworthiness. We confess before you our waywardness, our foolishness, our recklessness. And the only thing we have to claim before you is your grace and your mercy. Remind us of that. That we might go forth from this place living in joy and gratitude. That you would welcome the likes of us.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will we come, join the festivities, relish the Father's welcome, live into His embrace? Or will we continue to insist that we don't need it? That we can manage fine on our own? Younger brother, older brother, it matters not who you identify with. All that matters is that the Father is welcoming us. If you need to profess faith in Jesus Christ, then come as we sing. If you need a church home, come as we sing. But whatever the call, the Father is welcoming us. Let's stand and worship Him together.